these converging crises are putting us through an initiatory ordeal. And in these initiations, your customary way of handling a situation doesn't work anymore. And you're thrust into new territory. And in being thrust into new territory, you discover new capacities. Radio Mano Papachango. Hi, Chris. Tor here in Seattle area, sitting outside waiting to the sunset for the sunset to start my upside down fire. Hey, I just uh, wanted to thank you for your podcast and all the hours coming and going and uh, listening to you and your guests. Just a respite from the BS in the world, really. The, you know, posing and posting up. I mean, I'm in business and try and get some business ideas but I get the brain just gets tired and I go you know what I just need to go listen to Dan um, well actually you and Dan Savage are the two that I love to listen to just to relax and get real so thank you so much for that and you're an inspiration for your adventures around the world and how you you connect and make friends it's a bit of a challenge for me I'm, uh, on in life too about your same age so I appreciate all that you've kept me uh, entertained and happy during tough times in the last years of my life. Uh, divorce. I had a son that was killed. Stepson. Tough things happening. A lot of stuff that's just uncertain. But that's life. Uncertainty. Living, living in the midst of it. But thank you. Happy trails, man. I love to hear your shenanigans and all the stories you have. Take care and peace, love to all those out there. Hello, Chris, and all my fellow Tangendentalists. This is Josh. I am in a small log cabin in the beautiful woods of Michigan right now, looking out at a couple acres of property that I'm going to soon call home with a couple friends. Um, We're trying to move out here and live a little more intentionally. We have a big garden plot and some chickens, and there's a pond and an area to plant an orchard. So... It's terrifying, honestly, to take a big step like this and leave the city and try to live communally in the country. But I think you probably sometimes have to make big, scary decisions. And otherwise, you'll always wonder what if, right? Anyways, sending out lots of love to my fellow Tangentalists and to you, Chris, and your guests for helping me think about all this stuff and what makes life better. And, uh making me try experiments like this. So, much love. See ya. Hi, Chris and listeners. This is Jordan coming to you from beautiful southern Belize. Um, My family and I moved here a year ago from the States to start our permaculture farm. So, um, also had a baby in the last year and hadn't had a lot of time to catch up on podcasts till now. So, I'm going back into the archives and catching up. And I just want to give a shout out to some of the episodes with female guests you've had on in the last year that I've enjoyed. 
just listened to Janelle Kaz, Moto Gypsy, such a badass. I felt really inspired listening to your interview with her. And um, Abby Martin, wow, incredible, incredible woman. Now I am educating myself and checking out the Empire Files on YouTube and whoa. Thank you so much for introducing me to her. And also, very funny and entertaining episode with Carly from Slut Ever. Here's some roosters in the background and birds chirping. Um, but that's all. Love what you're doing so much. Keep doing it. And love to all your listeners out there. Really glad to know there's conscious, like-minded people out there. Love you all. Bye. All right, ladies and gentlemen. This is Chris Ryan. This is my podcast. It's called Tangentially Speaking. And I'm really glad you're listening to this. I'm sitting in the rain in the van in a parking lot in Bend, Oregon. I'm speaking directly into my Zoom. I'm not doing... I don't have the normal technological uh, system set up here because I left my laptop at my friend's place and uh i'm going rafting on a river tonight and i want to try to get this up and out before i leave civilization i'm going to be gone for a few days and then it's going to be chaotic and so anyway uh please forgive any technological weirdness i hope it sounds good to you i'll listen to make sure it does but unless it sounds really really shitty i'm not going to do this over again so here we are, uh, 10 days into a roughly three-month Vanthropology 2019 tour. If you follow social media, if you're on the Instagram, the big gram, uh, hashtag Vanthropology 2019, you can see photos from last year's trip, Vanthropology, you guessed it, 2018, and the year before that, you know where this is going. Anyway, uh I'm in Bend. It's great. I've had uh, an amazing time so far. Met uh, several people who listen to the podcast who sent an email saying, hey, uh, it looks like you're coming through Northern California. You should stop in. Stopped in Santa Cruz before we got um, like our first night. Had a get together there. I think I've mentioned this in uh, the last episodes. Fantastic. Really cool people turned out. Um, scheduled another one in Portland. Unfortunately, couldn't make it to Portland, so had to cancel. I hope if any of you didn't hear about the cancellation and went anyway, I hope you found each other and formed friendships that will last a lifetime. Because the thing is, I mean, I guess my presence is the excuse for everybody getting together and making the effort to go out and uh, show up, but really the the lure of these get-togethers is you. So I almost feel like me not showing up shouldn't really matter. I mean, I know it does in a way, but the cool thing that happens at these things is that you guys get to meet each other. So I'm really sorry if any of you didn't hear. I, I put a bunch of stuff on social media, but I realize not everyone's looking at it all the time. Um, but we just couldn't get to Portland in time, so um, we're still in Bend. Uh, we're going to reschedule the thing in Portland, and we're doing one in Seattle. I think it's on the 23rd, I believe. Um, but check my website. 
uh, tangentially speaking, go there. You'll see podcast. Uh, you're already on the podcast page, and there's a drop-down menu that says Vanthropology 2019 Tour Stops or something like that. I don't obviously have my computer with me, so I can't confirm that, but that's what it says, I believe. Anyway, that's that's the place. Go there. That'll have any updates. Um, you know, before you come out, check, you know, a, a day before or even the same day just to make sure because things are so fluid on this trip that um, it's hard to plan anything very far in advance. Um, we'll try to stick to the schedule, but, you know, things come up. So uh, that's the place to go to check. We're going to try to stop in Victoria, uh, B.C., We'll be up there in a couple of weeks, uh, probably do something in Vancouver, uh, and then it's going to be up into the Canadians, up around, um, uh, what is it, Lake Louise, up above uh, Banff, and then down through Banff. Uh, someone just told us about a really cool little town called Fernie, I think, in Alberta, and then we'll be going down into Montana, western Montana, maybe a little bit of Idaho, and down through Wyoming and south from there. Anyway, that's the story. This episode is with the great, fascinating, very, very smart Charles Eisenstein. I recorded this, um, I don't know, maybe six weeks ago now at Big Sur. Uh, he was there um, giving some uh, presentations and doing some workshops and stuff. I drove up from L.A. to hang with him. Um, he's... A fascinating dude who I've been wanting to meet for a long time. And um, we had, a, I think, a very good conversation. I, I was, I'm always very happy when I meet someone and the conversation goes places that I wasn't anticipating. And that's certainly the case with Charles. He's a very thoughtful guy um, and is... I don't know. Sometimes you meet people and it just feels like they were born to do what they're doing. And I mean, I didn't know him as a kid, but I get the sense that he's always been extremely thoughtful and um, and obviously well endowed in the intellectual department. So he's doing what he should be doing and uh it's to the benefit of everybody who reads his work and and listens to what he has to say so that's fantastic i also just recently recorded um i've got probably six or seven episodes in the can before i'll start dropping these episodes i'm recording on the road but i just recorded uh Two days ago, I think, uh, with Lier Keith, who wrote The Vegetarian Myth, very interesting book. She was a vegan for 20 years, and her health was suffering, and um, she finally had a doctor who said, if you don't eat meat, you're going to die, and she did, and changed her life, changed her health, and she wrote this book, um, and it's very interesting. I highly recommend the book uh, to vegetarians, non-vegetarians, anybody. Uh, you know, it's an argument. It's it's a perspective. And if you're the kind... I, I lent this book to a vegan friend of mine who said that she was open to other perspectives. She never read the book and she never gave it back to me. Yeah, what the fuck? If you're that kind of vegan, you probably shouldn't read it. But 
I don't think there's anything particularly wrong with veganism or vegetarianism. I think there's probably some body types that it works better for or worse for. I think we're all very different. And um, and I think that the impulse behind that approach to eating, which is a respect for animals and affection for the natural world and, and particularly animals, I think that's indisputably good. So um, I hope nobody will feel threatened or uncomfortable by that conversation. Anyway, uh, and then I did one with uh, Derek Jensen, who's um, sort of an anarch primitive primitive anarchist or anarcho primitivist or I don't know what the hell he is, but he's a super smart guy, very thoughtful, um, very sort of tuned into the issues around environmental collapse and um, economics and civilization and all that business. Speaking of civilization, I'm at the stage now where I'm doing a final, final edit on the book uh, and we're talking about cover art. And I'm getting into this weird conversation with my editor. He doesn't like the chimp that uh, is on these T-shirts that so many of you are wearing and that uh, I've got on the van. And it's a brand and people love it. A guy fucking tattooed it on his leg, man. And for some reason, my editor thinks the chimp is silly and he's not into it. And he's got this more sort of academic... Um, cave painting cover and I don't know so we're going around in circles on that uh, that's that's the stage we're at in the book and um, what else okay so one thing I wanted to comment on and you've heard me harp on this shit before but it's just another example of the same kind of sloppy ass thinking in my opinion maybe I'm being sloppy you'll tell me if I am but uh, so Terry Bradshaw I grew up watching the Pittsburgh Steelers. Terry Bradshaw was the quarterback in their heyday when I was 13, 14, 15, and things like football mattered to me. And Terry Bradshaw is this guy. He's funny. If you if you don't follow football, you wouldn't know who he is. But he, he's a funny Southern dude, says what's on his mind, charismatic, goofy, whatever. So the other day, apparently, he was, he was doing an interview and he was talking about how he had been on some TV show about, I think it's like singing and you get eliminated, you know, the voice or whatever these shows are. He was on one of those shows and he was talking about the judges who voted him off because he's a shitty singer, I guess. And he said yeah, one of them was, what's his name, some English guy. And then the other was, oh, I forget his name, the little short guy from Japan. Okay. Turns out that the little short guy is actually from Korea. And Terry Bradshaw then had to apologize for what is being described on newspaper and internet headlines. I saw this on CNN. Terry Bradshaw forced to apologize after making racially insensitive remark. So, okay, what racially insensitive now first of all are Korean and Japanese races are they different races is his crime that he mixed up the races because I mean I think 
Asian or East Asian at most is the race. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I know race race is a socially constructed thing, but I mean, if we're going to agree that that was racially insensitive, if that's the conclusion, then what's the race? And how was it insensitive? He, I mean, he said the guy was from one country, he's actually from another country. How is that racially insensitive? How is it insensitive in any way? He just fucked up. It's like, whatever, wrong country. I said he was Mexican, he's Guatemalan. Sorry. Is that racially insensitive? Would it be racially insensitive if I... If I referred to that that tall dude from Ethiopia, but actually he was from Somalia, is that racially insensitive? Oh, that guy, the blonde guy from Denmark. No, he's actually from Sweden, and that was racially insensitive. What? What? I, what huh? I don't... What, I, am I just, like, totally out of it? Because I can't find the slightest offense there. And it's not even a case of like, okay, some people are more offended because they're sensitive and there was the war and there's oppression. I, I, I can't even find that. I can't even find, I can't find anything to be upset about there. And it's not that he said short. I mean, I mean, short's objective. If the guy's like 5'2", he's short. Uh, and nobody's saying like it was a stature-insensitive remark. They're saying it's racial. And I saw this on, in plenty of places. It wasn't just CNN. This is like on the internet. Racially insensitive. Ah, I don't know. I mean, please tell me if you get it. And I don't like sometimes like as someone wrote to me the other day and said, oh, you were um, I was I was it was cringeworthy to listen to you and your guests talk about how black men who shave their heads are not seen as emasculated by the loss of their hair. Whereas white men can be seen that way. It was cringeworthy because you didn't talk about the history of slavery and racism. What? I don't get that either. I mean, I don't know what the hell that was. But people tell me, people write to me and tell me I'm an idiot. So if I'm being an idiot, I don't know, write to me and tell me, I guess. But but please tell me how I'm, tell me what I'm missing here. Because I don't get it. Anyway. All right. So... Thank you for listening. I'm going on a river trip for the next few days. It's raining like hell. The last thing I want to do is get on a raft and float down a river. I'm going to be cold and miserable and wet. But, you know, it's adventure. So I'm going to do it anyway. I'm doing it with Justin and Tom. Justin was on episode 99. Excellent episode um, where he talks about his dad being gay and his friend dying on this river on a rafting trip and then having to transport the body down the river, almost dying himself. This is the Deschutes River, for those of you who know the area we're putting in at Warm Springs. 
Uh, yeah, so uh, check out that episode if you like. It's episode 99, Justin DeRider. Great guy, one of my best friends. Um, love him. Met him through this podcast, like so many of my other great friends. Tom, the other guy I'm going with, met him through this podcast. So thank you. You people, whether you know it or not, you are participants in my life, and I am really grateful to the extent that I'm a participant in yours. And uh, if you're along our route somewhere, drop me a line and maybe we'll come and visit. All right, that's it. Charles Eisenstein, dig it. I hope this doesn't sound too bad. Sounds okay in my headphones, but you never know until you play the recording. Um, I'm out of here. Thank you, people. Catch you next time. I'm going to insert a song here. Album is Best Masala Tea, and it's on uh, Bandcamp. So just go to Bandcamp and search Best Masala Tea and Seamus Og, O-G. Uh, his buddy sent it to me, and then I wrote to him to make sure it was cool that I play something from the album, and he said, hell yeah, dude. So this is called Don't You Miss Me, Seamus Og from Best Masala Tea. Hope you're all having a great time out there. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.
gentlemen i'm uh sitting over the waves in big sur california with charles eisenstein pronounce it right yeah that's yeah? right good good last we were supposed to do this what three months ago i guess i was on my way up and it was a strange day i i left my place in topanga and i was driving along the 101 and the first thing i saw was a bunch of police cars around this bar off the side of the highway and people standing around and police tape and the uh, windows of the bar were blacked out with black plastic. I thought, wow, that's weird. That's a not a good omen. No, what's going no. on there? And then I realized that the night previously, that was the bar where the guy had shot up a bunch of people who were line dancing or something. It was like mm-hmm. a, a country western bar in, mm-hmm. in Woodland Hills, right near where I live. And so it was like, you could like feel the evil in the air you know Mm -hmm. it was really heavy and then I looked up ahead and I saw a column of smoke black smoke and I thought oh some asshole is burning garbage today like Uh really bad idea man you know and I drove past it and didn't think anything of it and I spent the night on the beach in the van near Santa Barbara and I went into town in the morning and uh I uh, went to a diner and I was having breakfast and on the TV there was all this all these scenes of chaos mm-hmm. in my neighborhood <laughs> you know mm-hmm. so that's when I I got in touch with you or or your yeah. assistant or someone just said shit I can't make it I got to right. go home and because I live uh, on the property of this 94 year old woman mm-hmm. who's wonderful genius one of the first people ever worked for NASA first women who worked mm-hmm. for NASA um and she collects old clocks and I'm I'm talking like 1700s, wow. like really old. And she fixes them and takes them apart and puts them. You know, she's. So I thought I got to get back with the van and get all her clocks in the van. You know, if we mm-hmm. get evacuated. But then I couldn't even get into the canyon. So anyway, wow. that's that's what happened last time I tried to talk to you. So far, I made it here alive. Well, that's an acceptable excuse. Yeah, it's a good yeah. excuse, huh? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I hope you didn't like look it up and find out it was actually a week <laughs> previously. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, my mom died again. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, anyway, so uh, thank you for making time for this. I, I yeah, know my you're, pleasure. you're a busy guy. Uh, 
you are so let's start with with the the, the background you're an economist by training no so, no you're not okay good so i'm wrong already tell me tell me uh, the background i don't really have training uh i have an undergraduate degree in mathematics and philosophy oh, okay and then i spent nine years in taiwan where i did translation and then you know that that became really routine after a while and I, at, while I was there, I had experiences that dislodged me from the story of reality that I'd been holding and mm. began to question a lot. And at the same time, just trying to make sense of the world and, and what's the origin of the wrongness that I see everywhere and what's happening here. And so that, that inquiry, which wasn't just a question, but also a feeling and a discontent that really prevented me from settling into a real career. So eventually, I guess I made that my career. Um, Exploring the source of the discontent? Yeah, like on a, both an intellectual level and, and more of a, you know, psychological, emotional, spiritual level. Um, and yeah, so I began writing about the deep narratives that, upon which our systems are built and how those are changing, how we can participate in that change, what the new mythology might be. And, and that's kind of the base level. So the economics work is one outgrowth of that. Oh, okay. Which I could talk more about it if, if you want me to, but. Yeah, uh, I, I, I have sacred economics. Mm -hmm. um, and my understanding, uh, well, why don't you, what is the thesis of that instead of me taking yeah. a stab at it? Well, yeah. I mean, basically it recognizes first that money is a story. It's a set of agreements. Right. And that it is embedded in a larger story, which you might even call a mythology that tells us what's real, what a self is, how the world works, what's important, uh, how to live a life, you know, how to be a man, how to be a right. woman, etc. Mm -hmm. And that the story of money, it feeds from that story and feeds into that story, the story of separation. Mm. So we have a money system that, that induces competition, anxiety, and scarcity, and necessitates endless growth. Right. And so a lot of the evils that we associate with money are coming from the story that underlies it. And it's not working very well anymore. Yeah. Like, for example, endless growth. Like, that used to be a great thing. Everybody believed that our destiny as humans lay in the conquest of nature and the transcendence of nature and the harnessing of everything to our purposes so that we would become the lords and masters of all. Of all. Like, that was almost uncontroversial in, you know, America in the 1950s. Yeah. And that story is breaking down now, both on uh, an ideational level and, you know, we just don't resonate with it. And also on a systems level, like it's not bringing us the benefits that were promised. But the money system is part and parcel of that story. It, it drives the endless conversion of nature into products <coughs> and relationships into services. Mm. So... As the story of separation and ascent and domination breaks down, the money system stands in contradiction, 
stands in contradiction to to the transition in our to a new story and so that's what that book is about it's exploring what might a money system look like that is aligned with a story of interconnection ecology interdependence interbeing right which to me obviously resonates very much with my understanding of a hunter-gatherer economic Mm -hmm. system which is based on gift and sharing and um uh, an underlying presumption of plentitude yes yeah and it's like how do you like we know how to do that in bands of a few hundred people yeah but how do we do that in a mass society like so so the the one one way to frame it is how do we translate the principles of gift into a mass society with a with a division of labor and and so on like that's and so the the basic principles are not new they're actually ancient so it's not really a new story but its application is new we have not had a civilization like that yeah yeah i feel like this is a theme that keeps coming up in my life and conversations and of course there's a self-selecting you know bias in all this but it feels like the way forward in medicine, in uh, economics, in social integration, in sexuality, in childcare, mm-hmm. in you know, in immunology and diet, every one of these categories, the way forward is informed by an understanding of the past, mm-hmm. right? Which right. sounds like a cliche, but I, I feel like it's more urgently relevant now than ever before because. Because I do, I agree with you. I feel like we've come to a point of breakdown. The way I envision it is like Joseph Campbell's hero's journey, right? Where, like, there, like the the course of civilization is like an elliptical orbit, mm-hmm. and we've reached the furthest point, and mm-hmm. now we're starting to circle back, right? And as T. S. Eliot, you know, these beautiful lines in um, Four Quartets, he said, "The end of all our." Travels will be to return to where we began and know the place for the first time. Mm. I feel like if we could pull this off as a species, what we would eventually do is return to essentially a hunter-gatherer existence informed by what we've learned in the last 10,000 years. Yeah, or maybe it's a spiraling back Mm. so that we don't come back to exactly the same Of course, it wouldn't be, yeah, the way it was because it would be informed by these things. There'd be solar power and there'd be, you know, an understanding of of, um, cellular biology and all these other things, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure. I I really don't know if it's going to be, you know, a return to, I mean, certainly it's going to be informed by these ancient ways of being and ways of seeing that have been excluded in the dominant culture. Like, like definitely if our own devices are insufficient to the task. Our own, our meaning the dominant culture, our, our, our patterns of problem solving, mm. our solution templates. Right. They're all part of the problem. They're all part of the problem? So we have to look outside. Representative government? I mean, where do you look, where do you find hope? Where do you find... I find hope in all the things that have been marginalized and excluded, including huh. these ancient ways um, or I mean, pretty much anything that gets labeled as alternative has a seed or a thread of the tapestry that we're going to weave. So and and they can also be found within like this as like a uh, recessive gene in the dominant institutions. Hmm. So 
there is something in representative government that that resonates with truth. And I can't remember who it was who said this. It might have been Thomas Jefferson, actually, who said that voting is the death of democracy in the sense that if you if you cannot agree and it has to come down to a vote and okay, let's put it to a vote. Like you, maybe you have experienced this in a, in a group setting, you know, where like you can't come to consensus and you can't come to consensus. Okay, so let's vote on it. And, and so voting and to some extent, the kind of democracy that we have right now encourages the dichotomization mm. of problems. And we're seeing, we're seeing today the political milieu has become so paralyzed, so polarized, I mean, and paralyzed, but so polarized that winning has become more important than the actual issues because we're the good side. So if we win, mm. then everything's going to be better. Right. And, and what gets sacrificed to that war effort could be the truth. Um, Do you think that's, that is in some way a displacement of religious energy onto politics? Is it coincidental that religious sort of affiliation is declining while that kind of hmm. tribalism in politics is increasing? Yeah, that's an interesting idea. Um, I think that the decline in religious affiliation is also part of the breakdown of our overarching story. Hmm. Like all of our institutions are failing. Yeah, that's true. And so people, when, when that breakdown in meaning and the ways we make meaning spreads, people are looking for some alternative source of meaning mm. and therefore very susceptible to fascistic ideologies. Right. Uh, oh, here's who you are. Here's the way it is. Yeah. And, and so I think that those are a symptom of the breakdown of religion and the breakdown of many other ways that we identified ourselves. Sure. Like as an American, right, citizen of the greatest democracy in the world, or land a lifetime of the free, job with GM, of, right, yeah, the story of a career, yeah, a marriage. Like yeah. Now we've got three, four different marriages. So yeah. you're doing a pause. No, I'm just going to turn it off. Um, yeah, it's so. Before we uh, go too far into the philosophy, and I do want to get back to to these practical questions. Are you um, oh, are you open to talking about the experiences you had in Taiwan that oh yeah I'm open that to talk launched about you into okay. yeah I, we can, right. I don't have to be like a smart guy here I can uh, talk about anything and also want. why did you speak Chinese how did that come about uh, you know I I needed to fulfill a language requirement in school I I stepped into a Chinese class the teacher was great hmm. uh, and then after a year and a half I hated college so much and was frustrated with the, uh, the limitations of learning Chinese in a classroom in America. Mm. That, um, I was like, well, why don't I just go to Taiwan? And I did not expect what would happen when I asked myself that question, which was I couldn't think of a good reason to say no. <laughs> so I was like, okay, yeah. I guess I'll go then. Yeah. And so I spent uh, half a year there and lived with Chinese students in this dormitory and immersed myself. And after half a year, I was able to speak pretty fluently. That's great. And then, then I came back, graduated from college with no clue whatsoever what I was going to do. Didn't apply to grad school, didn't apply to all the, you know, I didn't build my resume. I just had no plan whatsoever. Why philosophy and mathematics? Um, I mean, I was always good at math. 
in school. And partly, like already then, I was interested in these deep questions. Mm. And I thought, well, like what's foundational? And this wasn't, um, I wasn't explicitly thinking in this way, but, but what was going on underneath was, okay, what's the foundation of knowledge? And in, in this society, it's math and philosophy. Mm. So, okay, maybe the answers are there. And the failure, and I studied like foundations of mathematics. You know, that was my main emphasis. Like, like ancient Greek stuff? Pythagoras no, 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 or? like, you know, logic theory and oh, set okay. theory and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, recursive function theory and things that, that are like um, Goodell's theorem. Um, so this is sort of the overlap of philosophy and mathematics yeah. where you were. Okay. Yeah. Right. And I was, I was like, maybe here are the answers. And, and what I found I've, was very disappointing, mm. especially in philosophy. I'm like, I, these guys are not satisfying my deep thirst for, to know why I'm here and what this is all about. It, was these, it struck me as being these highly elaborated intellectual games and... So I became really disaffected. And so after I graduated, went back to Taiwan and made a life for myself there. Mm. And you were there six years? Nine years. Nine years. Yeah. Wow. Okay. And doing, yeah. did you say inter interpreting translation. or translation? Yeah, mostly. Of, did you specialize in particular type of document or? <laughs> I mean, honestly, I specialized in what made me the most money. Yeah. So. I did medical translation for a while in uh -huh. Spain. Uh -huh. I remember the first first thing they asked me to translate was about Pyrenees disease, which is this terrible thing where you go to bed, you're totally fine, you wake up in the morning, your penis is terribly misshapen, it's got swellings and it's twisted around and there's no cure for it and no one knows what causes it and like terrified me. It was wow. like, what the fuck is this? Maybe I won't go to the Pyrenees. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not Pyrenees Mountains. Pyrenee was the name oh, of okay. the guy who found it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Stay out of the Pyrenees. Go to the Alps. <laughs> uh, and then the second one, the second paper they asked me to do was this thing, this procedure of like pulling back the gums and scraping the roots of the teeth. I'm like, I can't, this is horrible. So I, I stopped. That I did mostly, it. I did a lot of business translation, but government, academic, I did everything. Uh, yeah, you know, yeah. I'm yeah. exaggerating a little bit when I say I just did whatever paid the most, but yeah. I wish I were exaggerating more. <laughs> Finally, I got a job interpreting or, or translating for uh, a big porn company. That huh. was the best one. That was the, the best uh, translation gig, private. Yeah, that was a, that's a long story. Anyway, uh, so you're translating in Taiwan, and you have these experiences. Uh, the way you yeah. just, you, it sounded to me like you took some mushrooms in Taiwan. Um, I did take some acid in Taiwan. Oh, okay. Um, and that, that was one of the experiences that, sh that confirmed my suspicion that reality was bigger than I'd been told. Right. Yeah. Uh, also, my contact with Chinese medicine, mm. which was able to completely cure like a severe ankle sprain that I had suffered that like I was expecting to be on crutches. And this guy just basically mm. gave me this 10 minute torture session where he was in there with his thumbs and stuff yeah. and put this herbal paste on it. And I was better the next day. Wow. Um, and. Uh, intersections with with qigong and Taoism, mm. um, people with capacities that my belief system said were impossible. Yeah, uh, 
and kind of stories of what we would call the supernatural. But, you know, in Taiwan, it wasn't supernatural. Right. Like, like the things that the uh, Taoist shamans would do or people just seeing ghosts and having experiences around that. And no one would say, oh, you're crazy. Go see a psychiatrist. They'd be like, oh, that's too bad. You better, you know, you had a ghost in your taxi cab. Yeah. Like, you know, like a taxi driver. He, he, he told me, yeah, I picked up this woman last week in the in middle of the night. And she was wearing wedding attire in the middle of the night. And I was like, that's weird. And she gave me this address in the old part of the city. And I drive her there. And then the address doesn't exist. And I turn around and there's no one in the back seat. And, you know, he's not like trying to impress a foreigner. He's not, he's not like, act, he seems like a totally normal, good, you know, taxi driver. And, and in Taiwan, the response is, oh, yeah, you better hire a Taoist priest to, mm-hmm. you know, clean out the energy in your taxi cab. It isn't, it wasn't like out of the ordinary. I mean, it wasn't mm-hmm. like normal, normal, normal. But, right. And, and so what am I going to do with that right. information? Am I going to just dismiss it as these superstitious natives deluded into thinking, you know, believing in the supernatural? Right. I know better than they know. But because of my radical political upbringing, I recognized that pattern of thinking as pretty much the same as the developmentalist or colonialist pattern of thinking. You know, we know how to live better than you do. Right. We know how to do it better than you do. You should be like us. We know how to think better than you. We know how to know better than you. So I was really hesitant to maintain the story of the world that I had grown up in. And, and so I, you know, initially, I mean, I was very rational. I mean, I'm still, I'd say I'm still pretty rational, but I was very scientific and pretty much believed in the materialist. See, even these words carry a trap. Like, it's not like I think that there's some other realm besides matter. I think that it's that matter has the qualities that we've exported onto spirit. But matter is so much more than what we conventionally understand matter to be. And it has all of the qualities that we've denied. Hmm. But anyway, so... That's inter- yeah, yeah. That's, we can so, unpack yeah. that. That's interesting. So there are, you're saying there aren't other realms in addition to matter. It's just that matter is much more nuanced and multivariate various right. than, than we acknowledge it's not dead material right that there is a spiritual it's alive to it's it. intelligent it's conscious right on every level down to an electron right yeah yeah and this coincides with with what hunter gatherers and traditional people believed and, almost universal quantum mechanics yeah and it's coming yeah. back into science now yeah yeah again one of those return yep. the, the loop mm-hmm. yeah very interesting yeah, so you were, what, in your 20s then, late 20s? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, starting, you know, in my early 20s. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's, that's a good trajectory. It's a good way to use your 20s. Question the, the very <laughs> <laughs> basis of your way of thinking. I, jo- again, Joseph Campbell called that detribalization. Mm-hmm. It's a concept that I find myself going back to a lot. I backpacked around the world in my 20s and 30s. Right. For the same reason. I Yeah. I hitchhiked to Alaska, took a year off college, hitchhiked to Alaska, and had experiences that made me question mm-hmm. everything, and involving psychedelics, involving meeting people that were so far out of my realm of, um, you know, acquaintance. Right. And uh, 
and then I just said, okay, I'm not going to commit to anything till I'm 30. Mm-hmm. Like my 20s, I'm going to float around the world and see what happens. Sounds like you did sort of the same thing. Yeah, it's kind of, there's a feedback process here because as the what I call the old story loses its grip, young people have a a yearning to search outside of it, mm. to do the traveling, you know, to yeah. not lock into a career so quickly. And when they do that, they have experiences that further loosen the grip of the right. story. Plus, they're, they're, they've got a growing, gaping hole in their resume. <laughs> yeah, right. That <laughs> makes it harder to go back you, to a normal life. Even if you want to rejoin, you can't. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Now, where were you for four years? And, and yeah. also, there's a growing cohort of people who have left that old story and can assure them that they're not crazy. Yeah, yeah. You know, whereas, you know, when I was coming of age, uh, there wasn't so much of a receiving ground. Mm. Uh, that could reassure me that I wasn't just being naive and irresponsible. So what years are we talking about here when you were in Taiwan? I first went in 87, and then I went back in like 89. So 90s. Yeah. So I was from 89 to 98, I was pretty much. Right. Yeah. yeah. Do you feel like, you know, because of these failing institutions that we were talking about earlier, you said there's a growing cohort of, of people ready to receive um, or assist people mm-hmm. who leave the herd, you know. Um, do you feel like, again, that this is sort of a return to, like, a, this spiraling to this alternative ways of thinking characterized it by, you know, the 60s? I mean, here we mm-hmm. are, Big Sur, right, which is one of the epicenters of alternative thinking. Yeah. And uh, do you feel like that? I, I feel like it's there's a reemergence of that. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I feel like... Um, we're standing on the shoulders of the people of the 60s yeah. who made that first leap outside yeah. of consensus reality. And they didn't have these shoulders to stand on like we do. So eventually consensus reality sucked them back in. Mm. And, you know, 10 years later, they were dentists and lawyers. I mean, not all of them. Some of them are still to this day. Yeah, sure. Still out there. They Around went back us. to the land and yeah. Or or that, or, yeah. 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 Uh, but we have a huge advantage because they set the template. Yeah. And now we have I think we've achieved critical mass. And they dared to make mistakes mm-hmm. that we can now avoid. Yeah. Hopefully. Yeah. Right. I read a thing the other day talking about uh communes, alternative communities and the author made a really good point. He said that everyone says, oh, that never works. They always fail. And they sort of, you know, shake their heads and scoff at the idea. But the success rate of communes that are still in existence, still functioning 20 years after being founded, is roughly the same as for startups in Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. And nobody ever says, oh, startups never work. That'll never, you know, right. no one poo-poos that idea. Yeah. Because uh, it makes money, ideally. Yeah. yeah, I think it's worth looking at the, failures and the successes some of them did succeed yeah and also what is a failure i mean if if a bunch of people take care of each other and have a great life for 10 years and then go their separate ways you know it's like when people say you know marriage is a failure if it only lasted 10 years what are you talking about that was a good 10 years or maybe it was a shitty 10 years (laughs) (laughs) some of the communes might have been like like totally terrible experiences well those are failures yeah right but yeah i get your point there (laughs) maybe marriage was a bad example um so you you mentioned your radical political upbringing were your parents uh politically engaged my father was a professor of political science and 
you know the archetype mm. of the liberal professor? No. Where did he teach? Penn State. Oh, that's where I was born. My dad taught there, too. Really? Yeah. State I was, college? I was born in Belfont. Yeah. No way. Yeah. That's funny. I mean, I grew up there, you know, um, from age four. Yeah. Yeah. You never uh, never had any interactions with Joe Paterno and his... Uh... Um, one of my friends was friends with his family. Yeah. Uh, no. Yeah. Um, it's weird how he went from being this amazing, like the, the god of state college to yeah. disgraced and then died a few months later. And that was a powerful breakdown in people's story. Yeah. You know, because exactly. people really constructed their identity yeah. around Penn State football. Yeah. And this is, yeah, this is just another part of the breakdown where, where our gods are being exposed as having clay feet. Yeah. Um, clay. But yeah. Um, yeah, he was. I mean, I wouldn't say he's politically radical, but he was highly critical of the Vietnam War and critical of corporations and an environmentalist. And mm. he wasn't a full-on Marxist, but definitely, you know, we'd watch the news and he would critique like every every little bit of it. So, did he know Howard Zinn by any chance? Nobody gave me. A people's history of the United States when I was like 15. <laughs> oh, that that's blew great. my little mind. You know? <laughs> that's great. Yeah. I was reading through it and kept waiting for us to become the good guys. <laughs> it never, never happens. happens. Yeah. Never happens. Yeah. Yeah. That's a fantastic book. I, yeah. I, I was actually, I was corresponding with Howard Zinn's um, assistant to try to get him on the podcast mm. when he died. Mm-hmm. And there was, there was some possibility and I, I told her I'll fly wherever mm-hmm. I'll, you know, any time of day and, you know, night or day, whatever. But yeah, very interesting guy. All right. So I sort of lost track. Where were we? We were talking about, uh, Oh, economics and, and wanting to question the whole. So do you think, Oh, this is where I was going. The, you were talking about trying to bring these, like hunter-gatherer value systems into large-scale society. Right. And so you're looking at, mm, I guess, mechanisms like universal basic income, maybe? That's one, yep. Yeah. Do you feel that there's an inherent contradiction between some of these mechanisms and the absence of reputational damage? You know what I mean? Uh-huh. Like when we don't know each other... It's easier to steal because you're stealing from an abstraction. That's right. Whereas I wouldn't take, if there were money here and you went to the bathroom, I wouldn't pick it up, right? Because right. you'd know it was me and that my reputation right. would be destroyed or, or I wouldn't do it just because I know you, I like you. And, but if it's, I find money in the street, well, right. you know, I'll keep it. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's not a panacea, but I think it is a step toward restoring a sense of us. Yeah, I think about that a lot. Yeah. Yeah, the sense of us. It feels like the sense of American us has always been fractured because of the immigration story, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, I live in Spain most of my life. And Mm -hmm. in Spain, there's a strong feeling of what it means to be Spanish. Mm -hmm. Like, how to behave. When I say a sense of us, I don't necessarily mean a national sense of us. It could be a sense of us as a city or as a community or as a neighborhood or Mm. something but a feeling of belonging. Right. So one reason that we don't have a feeling of belonging is because community has been strip mined and converted into services. Mm. And that is a necessity in a growth 
dependent money system. Uh, everything has to become part of the economy. Right. That's called GDP. Including friendship and That's babysitting right. and childcare and right. Right. Things right. that we used to do for each other as Entertainment, favors. recreation, leisure. Right. You know, even when I was a kid, like all the kids would be playing outside. Yeah. You didn't have to purchase entertainment for kids. That was right. ridiculous. Right. In my father's day, the whole neighborhood would gather together and sing songs on Sunday. Like, where does that happen? Yeah. Uganda, maybe. Yeah. Guatemala, maybe. Right. And so when, when you have a, a society like that, you look at every person and you know that you need them for your own well-being, your survival, your pleasure. But we, in our society, we look around and we know that I don't need you because I'm paying for everything that I need. Mm. So there's nothing to build community from. Mm. And the reason that that's happened is that all of these functions have been monetized. You know, your house burns down. Do the neighbors all get together and help you rebuild? Or do you get an insurance check? So that's like one example of the monetization of relationships. Yeah. So to rebuild that, I mean, this is a long process. And I think universal basic income uh, works on a lot of levels. One thing is it gives people it's an antidote to the feeling that we're not in this together, that it's a cool world out there. Right. And that I know that you're not going to contribute unless you're forced to by economic exigency. Mm. You know, it says we trust you. We know that your nature is to give, right. to contribute. And maybe you have to spend five years drinking beer in front of the TV for you to come around to that. And OK, we'll let you do that. I'm not saying like everybody's going to come around to it, but in the you know pilot studies that they've done of universal basic income, the results are really encouraging. Yeah, so, people start new businesses and yeah. go study things and take chances they yep. wouldn't otherwise ch- take. Right. Yeah. And another thing, and this is coming up a lot these days, the um, you know with automation and AI and the mm. uh, the you know labor becoming superfluous. Um, it provides another way besides economic growth for there to be for people to have money because today as automation and so forth increases productivity and requires fewer and fewer workers the only way to maintain full employment is to increase consumption so the goal of economic policy has been keep the economy growing. Otherwise, if you have, so if each worker say becomes twice as productive, then you only need half as many workers mm-hmm. unless we're consuming <clears throat> twice as much. Mm. And our, our economic system only offers that as an option to make the economy work. The other option would be for everyone to work half as much and consume the same. Doesn't that sound nice to you? Sounds great to me. Like, let's not just keep consuming more just so that we can keep consuming more. So universal basic income allows an economy to function that doesn't depend on infinite growth. Yeah. It's one of the two main pillars of an economy. What's the other? Negative interest. Ah, right, right. Which basically means changing the way that money's created. Right. Spend it because it's going to lose value if you save it. Right. And that's a principle of gift economics. So our, Wealth is not dependent on how much you keep. So are highly inflationary economies reflective of that? 
Uh, kind of. You know, high inflation, in, in principle, it benefits debtors and harms creditors. So it redistributes wealth. Uh, the problem is that, as you may have noticed, prices tend to inflate faster than wages. Mm. So it doesn't, it's not reliable mm. as a way to redistribute wealth. Mm. Right. But mathematically speaking, negative interest would be the same as a uniform inflation rate. Right. Yeah. So what if... It takes actually a lot more time to really go into that. So yeah. we can't do that here. I'll just... But I, I do want to seed the idea. Yeah. Yeah. I When I think about universal basic income, I think about it married to an incentive for not having children. I think you got to be careful to make sure that you're not giving an incentive to have children. So you have to set it at just the right amount, you know, that you have neither an incentive nor a disincentive to have children. You want people to have children because they want to have children, not because it's going to be to their financial advantage. Why not disincentivize it? Because it's not necessary. Because you See, I feel like global population is, and I've been sort of nipping around the edges yeah. of this, right? Because I feel like the things that we're talking about are, if not impossible, great. the difficulty is greatly increased by scale, mm-hmm. right? And so if there were 50 million people living on Earth, there's a lot of margin for error there. Right. There's a lot of room to fuck up, and we'd yeah. still have plenty of food, plenty of space. You know, quality of life would be fantastic. Yeah. So... And, and there's no inherent, there's nothing better about having 100 million people than 50 million people. Right. Once you get out of this colonial or agricultural way of thinking. Yeah. So why not radically, why not incentivize? Because a lot of people in Pakistan and places like that are having kids as a way to secure their old age. So once you've taken that away with the universal basic income, why not incentivize not having kids? Well, okay. There's different layers I can go into with this issue. I, I, I talk about it a bit in my climate book um, because, you know, people are like, Charles, you're ignoring the elephant in the room, population growth. So, so from the perspective of universal basic income, yeah, if people have that, then they're not going to need to have children to support them in their old age. But I'll say like about population, the biggest... Um, like they study, you know, what cultural factors, what demographic factors contribute to high birth rates. And by far, the most influential factor is infant and child mortality. So the when a society um, reduces their infant and child mortality rate to to, you know, kind of industrialized levels, then within one or two generations, the birth rate plummets. Hmm. So basically there's two patterns of a human society. One is high death rate, high birth rate, which makes sense. Like if you know that half your kids aren't gonna make it, you wanna have a lot of kids. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the other pattern is low birth rate, low death rate. And we're seeing this happening um, all around the world. Um, Most countries now, like the majority, more than half, have a birth rate that is lower than the replacement level. Yeah. And this trend is accelerating. Mm. I mean, in some countries, it's like, you know, 1.2 or 1.3 children per woman. Yeah, Japan, Spain yeah. are two of the big ones. Yeah. yeah. So, 
I think that like so on on like a broader level, you know, you have this this um, what looks like an exponential curve of population, uh, but it, an exponential curve is is very similar to in in that phase to this kind of curve, one that that peaks and then approaches an asymptote, or that peaks and then declines again in a hump. Uh, and I think that we are approaching a steady state population. Mm. I would. And then another factor here is like, is population the problem? And I went into a bunch of research about how if everybody on Earth lived the lifestyle of a Bangladeshi villager, the Earth could support at least 15 or 20 billion people. If everybody lives the lifestyle of a North American, 2 billion people is not sustainable. Yeah. So it's a, really it's a question of how do we want to live? And then... With keeping in mind, by the way, that the Bangladeshi villager is having 14 kids. That, right? That's well, part of the calculation. Not, like, not, I mean, not necessarily. I mean, you could have, um, you could imagine them living in a very sustainable way, using not many resources and mm. not having a lot of kids. Mm. Anyway, I personally would prefer an Earth with fewer people, uh, just because, like, you know, it's nice to go out to some hot springs somewhere and there's not like a horde of people there, you know? Yeah. And I think that yeah. that we are reaching peak population probably in the next 30 years. And and there will be a decline. And this um, this idea that if we only solve population growth and cut the population, then all our problems will be solved. That way of thinking, that reductionistic way of thinking that wants to find the one cause, sure. the enemy, the one thing to fight to solve all our problems. I'm very wary of that template. Sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. it comes from money thinking, where if you only had enough money, mm. all your problems would be solved. Like, what's the one thing? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Or if you believed in Jesus. Right. Right. Fundamentalism. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, what do you say to people who argue that growth is necessary? So you look at some place like Japan, you say, well... How are they going to pay for their retirees? Yeah. There's no way. So they need to either have lots of babies or lots of immigrants. Somebody has to do all this work in order to you know, pay into the system, et cetera. Is there a way to transition into negative population growth that isn't going to be horrendous? Well, I mean, on one level, it's the there's going to have to be major financial reform, like a change in the money system and economic mm. system. Mm. Uh, and, you know, people are talking about how, how labor is becoming superfluous and people are getting automated out of their jobs. And, and it's true. We need fewer and fewer people to meet mater the material needs of society. Mm. And we're going to need more and more people to take care of older people, to do healing work, to do ecological restoration work. I mean, there's tons of beautiful, necessary work that doesn't produce salable product mm. you know but that the planet and society really need right now right universal basic income can support those things yeah i was thinking about this today i, I had breakfast on uh, the highway or the road mm -hmm. route one along big sur and i stopped there and a guy came i was eating some yogurt and this guy came and he said man look at this road it's a beautiful road the way they did it right they didn't mm -hmm. cut through everything it's like a ribbon sort of laid along and look at that beautiful bridge and mm -hmm. 
I said, yeah, wasn't that like 1930s public works mm-hmm. administration, right? FDR and, you know, and, and it's like, yeah, that's right. You know, except for the new bridges, this is all from the 30s. And that's what you're talking about. That's where people were being paid to do important things that weren't necessarily economic generators. Yeah. I mean, Doroth- Dorothea Lang was paid to go all over the South taking pictures of yeah. people in poverty. Some of the most beautiful photography in the world. Lots yeah. of writers were paid to write about the experience of the time. So yeah. There's a lot of stuff you can do f- that should be paid for. You should be supported, but it isn't yep. money-making. And for that to happen, we have to have a collective story, mm. a collective aim, like right. a collective vision of what kind of world do we want to create. Right. And this is, in you know, when I speak to environmentalists and, and so forth, I'm like, sustainability is not the right concept. Because it kind of means how do we sustain what we already have? Mm. How do we find some other fuel source to right. keep industrial civilization as keep we know it, it as moving? it is, yeah. But instead of thinking about what do we want to sustain, how about like, or how to sustain it, what about what kind of world do we want to live in? And when we, if we can forge that common agreement, then the, the deployment of resources and money becomes becomes clear and it's like yeah we let's orient toward beauty or let's orient toward toward healing and 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 value that and reflect that value in our money system in our our political system and use that as an organizing principle because right now we don't have an organizing principle Mm. we used to it was growth domination uh, this was the grand enterprise that everybody believed in. And we no longer believe in that. And there isn't a replacement yet. I, I call that the, the space between stories. Mm. We don't know. We don't, we don't know who we are as a people, as a civilization. We, and, and that creates a crisis of identity too. Mm. Because we only can have a strong identity in relation to, to society. And when societies systems of meaning break down, our personal ones break down too. And we're left with what? We're left with us versus them. We're left with maximizing self-interest. Um, and so politics kind of muddles or muddles along on, on neutral. And we feel incapable of like getting anything done, which is so different from the 50s. Let's build the interstate highway system, you know? Yeah. Like, let's put a man on the moon. Like right. we knew who we were. <clears throat> And, and we're in a place in between a story of the people right now, which is good in a way. I mean, the old story was... Bullshit. <laughs> That's one way to put it. <laughs> or, I mean, it, I would say that it's, it served its purpose. Yeah. 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 Well, if its purpose was to, you know, dominate brown people and women and, you know, right. in, enrich miserable rich people the thing that i keep coming back to is like rich people are miserable that's the great tragedy yeah. of it all right you could you almost know? justify it if the rich people were actually happy yeah if from they were just like everybody else. so happy and right. you know ecstatic but you look at rupert murdoch and like jesus christ what a miserable old fuck he is he doesn't look like he's full of joy does he <laughs> I don't think he's enjoying his Compared money. to like, you know, a Bangladeshi villager. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. If yeah. the, and they actually do these studies of life contentment. And yeah. it tends to be the uh, relatively low uh, 
economic status, high religiosity, mm-hmm. in which, and I think that that comes down to community, yes, sense of community and and meaning and belonging and all these things you were talking about earlier, yeah, and even in physical health, I just read the other day the World Health Organization's latest report came out and the healthiest society in the world based on longevity is Spain, despite uh-huh. the fact that they have one of the highest tobacco. Uh, uh-huh. usage rates and the highest alcohol usage uh-huh. rate. And I lived there 20 years, right? It's because, like you were saying, let's reorient toward beauty and pleasure. I love Spain because the whole society is about pleasure. There's no yeah. shame yeah. in pleasure. Yeah. So I remember, I probably told this story in the podcast before, but I remember um, when Starbucks first came and they were trying to do this coffee-to-go thing, and Spanish people were like, I don't get it. Why would you walk down the street drinking coffee? Like, you want a coffee, sit down, read the paper, have a coffee, and you yeah. show up five minutes late. So what? You enjoy right. your coffee. Like, they're not into multitasking, no. you know? It's, it's, they're like, enjoy it. A cheese sandwich is two pieces of bread, good bread, olive oil, and a slice of good cheese. Mm-hmm. No lettuce, no mayo, no tomato, no, no works. There are no uh-huh. works, you uh-huh. know? A sandwich there is like just uh, taste the cheese. It's yeah. yeah. I, I learned a lot about life living in Spain and, and felt a resonance, like a wisdom in the society that I don't feel here. One thing I noticed in, in Taiwan, along you mentioned health. You know, the year that my seventy-year-old uncle got his chairlift installed in his house um, to help him get upstairs, I was in Taiwan and like you know, I would go hiking in the mountains. And there were these little temples, little Buddhist and Taoist temples up there that you could only reach <clears throat> by climbing a thousand stairs yeah. or two thousand stairs. They were up there. And like there'd be 80 year olds up there. There'd be 90 year olds up there. <laughs> yeah. 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 Our movers, when we moved back to the States, <laughs> uh-huh. one of them was 70. <laughs> and the guy carried a refrigerator. <laughs> yeah. On his Strap back. on his forehead. Yeah. 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 That's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. It's there's a there's a wisdom in in these things. I, I remember reading some research that showed that Chinese people suffered no diminishment of memory uh, as they aged mm. uh, until they moved to the U.S. and they did, and they they controlled for diet mm-hmm. and exercise, and they determined that. The the factor that that led to this diminishment in memory in Chinese people living in the U.S. was the expectation that they were going to lose their memory as hmm. they aged. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. And these cult. This is my the you know what I love is this cultural stuff. Yeah. You know, or the the schizophrenics who all schizophrenics hear voices, but differing different cultures, the voices say different things. Uh-huh. So in America, they tend to be you know you're a piece of shit go kill someone kill yourself like right. in india it's like today's a good day to clean the kitchen uh-huh. you know it's totally different tanya right. lerman at stanford uh, did a lot of research with this mm-hmm. it's yeah anyway i don't know yeah. what the hell that has to do with anything practical matters so you're i i take it your work is largely about trying to bridge this gap or or uh, offer an alternative paradigm in well, this moment of crisis is um there's there's different different streams that feed into it one is on a systems level 
uh, what what new systems of money or education or medicine, et cetera, et cetera, would are are consistent with uh, the story of interbeing. That's what I see as the successor to the story of separation, mm. where you know separation, you're a separate self in a world of other that operates by force. Um, it's, I could go into it more. And interbeing, who you are is relationship. It's the ecological self. The you are the totality of your relationships. You right. are the holographic mirror of all that is. Which is a very East Asian approach to identity. It's definitely more at home in, um, yeah, East Asian religion and, and culture. Are you familiar? This is also Tanya Lerman at Stanford did the same research. People who are raised in societies uh, reliant on rice tend to have different cognitive patterns than people. And her theory is that rice requires the community to be involved. Yeah. Because it's so a lot, all so a lot the, of it is about community. You know, if you if you grow up and you see your entire lifetime that the most esteemed person is the one who's the most generous, mm -hmm. who gives the most. Right. That's the richest person. Yeah. He may have nothing on hand right now, but everybody feels grateful to him. Right. And you see that whoever gives everything away is well taken care of. And whoever is in need receives gifts. If you see that your whole life, you're gonna believe your worldview is gonna be consistent with that. That your well-being and my well-being are connected. Embedded within the society. What's good for yeah. you is good for me. Your yeah. blessing is my blessing. Yeah. Your misfortune is my misfortune because then that disrupts the circle of gift. Yeah. Growing up in this society, we're conditioned to see the world in a very different way. Despite the fact that Jesus said exactly those lines you just said, you know, you give everything away and you'll be rich, right? And right. So Jesus was, you know, trying to provide an antidote to a trend that he saw yeah. gathering. Right. Um, so anyway, so yeah, my work, part of it is about, I, mean, I, I, I elucidate this transition in stories and, and so, okay, how does it apply to politics? How does it apply to medicine? How does it apply to education? Um, to relationship and and then also um, how does it apply to our psychology in what ways do we embody the story of separation how does it manifest as habits mm. in our relationships in our thinking in our perceiving so there's a personal dimension you could call it spiritual I don't usually use that word um, and then there's a, a collective dimension a systems dimension and each of these mirrors the other. And the transition process shares a lot of commonality too. The, the uh, crisis, the breakdown, the space between, the emergence of something new. The, um, yeah, so, so those are the, that's kind of the big picture of what so, I do. So the paradigm that's breaking down now, how far back do you locate the origins of that? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, when I first began exploring it, I was trying to take it back as far as I could, you know. So was it the Industrial Revolution? Well, some people say, no, the problem started with agriculture. When we first started to domesticate the wild and turn other beings to our purposes. And agriculture was the birth of, of division of labor, of money, of slavery, of warfare, like all these things, any civilization hierarchical political hierarchies, systems. misogyny, yeah. uh, patriarchy, 
You know, you saw terrible it. disease. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you saw it in China, India, yeah. Middle East, South America, like everywhere where civilization arose. Same thing. Yeah. But then there are deeper critiques, like um, John Zerzan. Uh, he says, you know, agriculture is just the reification of the conceptual domestication of the world through language, representational language, naming things, categorizing things. We're, ma- we're, we're setting the template of making it all ours by doing that. And the fall, he says, came with, with representational language 40,000 years ago. Well, and that's a ball buster. I know. What are we supposed to do now? Not yeah, talk? Totally. And this is where I took yeah. it. Because I'm yeah. like, actually, maybe you could take it back 10 times farther. You know, hundreds of thousands of years ago to fire. Right. That created a distinction between the domestic and the wild. Hmm. So maybe we should stop using any kind of fire. And, and, and we evolved and adapted around that. Right. Or what about stone tools? Yeah. You Technology. Know, that artif- so, uh, so... But, you know, animals even use tools, crows. Sure. So, and are we seriously, and I jokingly said, maybe the, the fall was the eukaryotic cell, which selfishly kept all of its DNA for itself instead of sharing it in universal bacterial sex. The cell membrane, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. obviously we're not, when we're talking about the future, you know, we're not talking about deindustrializing or ending agriculture or ending language or ending um, the cell nucleus, right? That can't be right. And what it came to is that if it goes back that far, this, this journey of separation, this extreme of separation today, must be part of a larger process and must be happening for a reason. So what makes you think that this ancient trajectory towards separation and and sort of um, deanimation of mm. the world is suddenly going to pivot into the story of interdependence and love and we're all in this together. Like, it's yeah. been going this way for a long fucking time. Yeah. Um, so, f- for one thing, changes of this sort do happen suddenly, uh, relatively speaking. So what I'm seeing, so just let me, so, okay, the age of stone tools began maybe a few million years ago. The age of fire, a few hundred thousand years ago. Language, a few tens of thousands of years ago. Agriculture, a few thousand years ago. Industry, a few hundred years ago. And then the extreme of uh, separation is is digitization, the virtual world. And that's a few decades ago. So we have an acceleration um, each revolution happening faster and faster and faster. And to me, that points to a, you know, it's, it's reaching its extreme. Um, and that a, 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 a revolution or a change that's qualitatively different than any of these revolutions before, mm. each of which were an intensification mm. of what came before. Of pre-existing, right. Yeah. Right. So we're facing something qualitatively different. And I don't know, in life for me, big changes often happen through an accumulation of crisis. Mm. The crises that we're facing today, were they are 
their seeds already exist in, I mean, they were there thousands of years ago. Sure. Visionaries could see it coming right. thousands of years ahead of time. Right. So the basically the story of separation carries the seeds of its own destruction or its own metamorphosis. Yeah. And and today, then, you could look at it as these converging crises are putting us through an initiatory ordeal. Mm. And in these initiations, your customary way of handling a situation doesn't work anymore. And you're thrust into new territory. And in being thrust into new territory, you discover new capacities. Like a new part of you comes into manifestation, a new capacity, a new part of yourself, and a new understanding of yourself. And then having gone through the initiation, you return to the tribe as a full member. And I, I, so I, I, I believe that civilization is going through a coming of age ordeal. And the tribe that we're returning mm. to is the tribe of all life on earth. Mm. It's to reintegrate into a world in which we're not alone. We're among myriad beings. The story of separation holds us as alone. It says we're the only beings here, the only full beings yeah. in a world of stuff. Yeah. And the indigenous view has never been that. They saw us and understood themselves to be in a world thick with beings. Everything is watching you. The sky is watching us now. The air is listening to us. Yeah. And, and these beings possess intelligence and consciousness. They're not less than we are, just very different. Yeah. So that's what we're returning to. And when we, when we return to that, we no longer seek to just dominate everything, but we begin to ask, what is our place? How do we contribute to the well-being and the evolution of this conscious, intelligent, magnificent totality. That's what these crises are birthing us into. And I'm not saying we're going to make it. Um, in like real traditional initiations, sometimes you didn't make it. I was, yeah. You anticipated my, my pain in the ass question. I was going to ask if you believe this or you hope this. Um, yeah, there's a paradox here. I believe that we are facing an initiation. Um, I'm, it, that, that idea resonates with truth mm. for me. And as for whether we're going to make it through, in the story of separation, whether we make it through or not is, doesn't depend on me or you because we're just two individuals. And no matter how we commit ourselves, and no matter what work we do spiritually, internally, if everybody else isn't doing it, then too bad. Because self and world are separate. But there's another part of my being that somehow understands that somehow everything I do is significant and that the results, the outcome, of this initiatory ordeal depend on me mm. and that my choices kind of shape shift me or shift me into the reality in which we either do make it through or don't or shift me into alignment with a certain future 
Mm. So like there are these many futures right. coexisting in a quantum superposition. Yeah. And which one we communicate with, that's the one that is, quote, true. I mean, that's like a little bit of the paradox here. Yeah. And I'm not like trying to lay this big thing on you and saying No, no, I, I think about that, whether yeah. to the extent to which my risking it and hoping and believing that there's a chance could call forth that future. Right. Yeah, like in a fractal sort of way. And aligning yourself with it. Like what kind of future are you aligned with? Right. Is it, and this comes down to um, a theory of change too. Like what is it that brings one future or another into existence? Mm. The, our inherited theory of change basically is Newtonian. Mm-hmm. It says that change happens when you exert a force on something. So if you want to be a big change, big change maker, you have to accumulate the tools of force, money, or a big platform. So in that story, you are a big change agent because you know hundreds of thousands of people are listening to you. Uh, I'm a big change agent because I'm writing these books that right and the uh, the single mom who's struggling really hard to take care of her uh, disabled child and amidst all that pressure still holds love and patience I mean that's all very moving but sorry she's not making a big impact on the world she doesn't have a podcast right it's not going viral yeah, <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> but yeah there, there is a part yeah. of me and you that knows that what she is doing is absolutely significant right and that on a 500 year time scale those invisible choices are are maybe more influential than anything the big guys mm. are doing that every choice matters and that makes sense when you understand that that self and world are not separate in the way yeah. we think yeah and or that you, you we can invoke morphic resonance mm. you know any change that happens in one place generates a field of change that makes the same change happen more easily elsewhere. Yeah. Any act of kindness, any act of generosity creates a field of kindness and generosity. And and therefore we can be serene in knowing that by choosing an alignment with the world that we want to see and who we want to be in it, we will invite that world. That's not to say don't do a podcast or don't be politically active or anything like that. Mm. But it's to not privilege that over taking care of grandma. Right. Well, you know, my favorite um, thing about this podcast is that I hear from people who say, um, you know, I listened to you and Charles talking and I thought I was the only one who thought these Mm -hmm. things. And now I know there are other people out there who think these things. So it's not that, it's I mean, I really feel like it's not like you and I are on a stage somehow. It's that mm-hmm. like we're having this conversation that other people become part of because mm-hmm. it's already happening in their heads. They're already in the place where you and I both were saying, wait, I don't want to do this. I don't want to, you know, nine to five, wear a tie, shave every day, punch in, punch out. Like, I don't want that. What am I going to do? And with podcasting, it's so amazing that all these alternative voices can be out there and mm-hmm. people find a community. And in this case, they find 
a community, as you say, that's based upon interdependence and taking care of each other and, you know, Mm -hmm. those sorts of values. I I really think that I'm only able to say the things I'm saying because people are thinking them. Yeah. People often do say that, like, you know, Mm. thank you for giving voice to what I've been thinking all along. Mm. Um, It's not like I'm, you know, coming up with new ideas. I'm a mouthpiece of the collective mind. And a hub. That, that they can yeah. all, you know, so many people have said to me, you got to get Charles on your podcast because they're like, what Charles is talking about, what you're talking about, what these other guests are, are talking about is all part of mm-hmm. a matrix yeah. that's emerging somehow. Right. And it, yeah, it's all about interconnection, like like a brain forming or something. Right. You know, yeah, a brain forming, a being is emerging. Yeah. And uh, putting us to good use. And so it's, for me then, it's like... A, it's about honing my listening organ. Mm. How do I know when this being is calling me and putting me to good use? How do I recognize that? Yeah. What, how do you deal with ego? How do you, by being the hub but, and so many people coming and admiring you and wanting to hear you and blah, blah, blah. How do you personally deal with, because once you start getting ego, then you invalidate your, your message, right? Yeah, I don't um, directly try to battle my ego. I think that, and I think that that's futile. And it's usually the ego that wants to achieve the impression of not having a big ego. (laughs) Nice. Um, Uh But but the more that we're aligned, (laughs) the more that we're in service. That was like an Aikido move you just did on me there. (laughs) The, the more that we're in service to an aim, uh-huh. the um, less we'll be in service to the ego. Mm. Because, like, what are you really serving here? You know, like, and so I face this choice a lot. I could, in a given situation, I can serve um, fostering understanding in somebody, or I could serve looking really smart. Right. Sometimes those two coincide. Right. And I can look really smart while I'm helping somebody, but sometimes. I have to choose. And I think that as we pursue any any path in life, any any aim, any goal beyond ourselves, we get these a series of opportunities to clarify our service. What are you really serving here? And with each opportunity, and you could take it either way. You could take it you could take a step into greater service or you could take a step into ego. And like, I mean, I can't say that I'm, you know, especially noteworthy in going one direction or another, but I do know that when I take a step away from service to the thing that I'm here to serve, uh, it doesn't feel very good. And I feel, I feel like a fraud. And I mm. feel empty. Mm. And and. <laughs> For me, what it comes down to is it gets boring. You know, it gets boring to have everybody congratulating you and stuff. Yeah. I'm like, part of me is like, and? So? Um, what, what good does it do me, really? So this is part of understanding. Like, as this understanding of interbeing grows inside of me, it's not like I've achieved it. But as it grows with a lot of help from amazing people and experiences that invade my life, as it grows, the 
the rewards that appealed to my ego become boring. I, I care less about those things. They don't seem important anymore. Mm. It's like the person who's had a near-death experience and, and they just don't care about ambition anymore. Right. You know, it's the person who's went to India and saw the, the poverty and, and no longer cares about holding on to their wealth anymore. Like I, all of us, I think, are, are gifted with these incursions into our house of self mm. that say, is this what you really want? Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I had um, just a few weeks ago, I interviewed a Christian missionary who was working with uh, Mocha people and, you know, the sea gypsies in Burma and mm. Thailand. And um, you reminded me of him just now when you were talking about aligning yourself with the sense of service, because he had absolutely no concern with proselytizing, saying anything about Jesus. Mm -hmm. He said, I'm here to embody the love of Jesus mm -hmm. by being as useful as I can be to these people mm -hmm. and help them in this difficult transition because their boats got wiped away, wiped mm -hmm. out by the tsunami. Mm -hmm. And now they're trying to transition to living on land for the first time. And it's really hard. And he's, he's not talking, no Bibles, no nothing. Mm -hmm. He's just like, I'm here to, to help. That's it. Yeah. And, and I was really uh, touched by him because I have such a negative sense of of missionaries as being you right. know, like colonialists, the front, you know, the sort of shock troops of colonial yeah. exploitation. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, it was nice. And what you just said sounded, I mean, it was virtually the same thing. Do you feel a religious or a, like is your passion for what you do? Do you sometimes feel that? I mean, I guess there's a deeply spiritual component to it. It's what gives your life meaning. Sounds like. Yeah, I mean, I'm not. Um, I don't identify with a uh, standard religion. Yeah. Um, but I feel like really at home with devoutly religious people. Mm. So. Yeah, I don't have too much of a problem saying, "Yeah, I'm a Christian." Um, maybe I mean something different than right. a lot of people who call themselves Christians mean. Um, yeah I'm definitely in service to something that I really can't even name there are traditions that don't even say the word God because to say it is to reduce it yeah. to something less uh, and, and you know if I'm asked by you know a men's work guy what's your mission I'm like, well, I could say that it's to serve the birth of a new story on earth or something like that, but that almost is insulting to it. The important thing isn't to be able to describe it or name it, but it's to recognize it when it's present and to listen to its call. And I think that the more that we do that, the more these virtues appear in our lives as a side effect, really, of alignment with an aim. So integrity, honesty, humility, like none of these things, in my experience, can be achieved mm. as ends in themselves. Usually you can only achieve their semblance. And then the question is, okay, so what aligns you 
how do you do that? Is that something you can achieve? And in my experience, no. It's something given to me that I can't take credit for. And this isn't me trying to be humble. This is just what I see as true, what now, I've experienced. How, how long have you known this or felt this or, or seen this path forward for yourself? I mean, it's a big thing to start. How old were you when you wrote your first book? Uh, I mean, like, I wrote kind of a practice book when I was called The Yoga of Eating when I was in my early 30s, I guess. The Ascent of Humanity, I finished in when I was 40. Mm. Yeah, that was my did, first. Did you have a contract or were you writing on spec? <laughs> oh, I wish. No, I was like, I mean, no one would publish it. You know, I self-published it. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you get the the courage and the persistence to do that? It wouldn't let go of me. Uh, I had like no choice in the matter. Right. Yeah. That's good. As when I was working on Sex at Dawn and I talked to a friend in publishing and he said, I tell everyone the same thing. Don't write a book unless you absolutely have to. Yep. Don't write a book. That's great advice. <laughs> Don't do <laughs> People it. People think that it's going to like be your key to, I mean, I thought that, you yeah. know, I thought this book is so brilliant. I'm going to be rich and famous. You know, yeah. everyone's going to recognize it. And, yeah. you know, three months after it was published, my monthly sales total was five. <laughs> <laughs> That's rough. Yeah. The Ascent of Humanity. Have you read The Ascent of Man, Jacob Bernowski? The title of the book is an ironic comment on that. Uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's very much the Western. You know. Yeah. I had a copy of that book that when I was like 12, 13. I probably mm-hmm. read it five times. I, you know, it's the first book I mm-hmm. studied and underlined and, mm-hmm. you know, pretended I understood uh, mm-hmm. a lot more than I actually did. But. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Listen, I'm going to let you go. That you know, I can't imagine getting more meaningful and articulate statements out of you than you've already given uh-huh. me. <laughs> I think you can't. You can't possibly top that, can you? Do you have anything canned you want to throw out? <laughs> um, yes, my yeah. take-home points. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What's your elevator pitch? Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, this is great. I I came into this thinking I was going to interview a writer, but. It feels like you're much more than a writer, or much less. Yeah, I don't know. Or much less. Depend. I mean, yeah. It, it, I mean, I kind of identify as a writer. I'm, I don't identify as a spiritual teacher or. Um, I mean, I guess a writer and a speaker. Yeah. Yeah, I do a lot of public speaking, which I enjoy too. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, from one perspective, I basically do nothing. Yeah. You know, yeah. I <laughs> It's good work if you can get it. Yeah. All right. Thanks. Uh, Charles Eisenstein, you have a, what's the website? Is it Charles Eisenstein? Charles Eisenstein dot something. Dot, dot, dot whatever. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. He's out there. And uh, yeah. How many books have you written? Or, I guess five. Five. I think. Yeah. You're pumping them out. And did you have to write every one? I guess so. <laughs> I mean, I only write one every, on average, every three or four years. Yeah. Sometimes, yeah. Took me... Uh, 10 years to get my second one. Mm-hmm. I, I won a decade is probably my... Like, yeah, that's not bad. David Abram writes like... He takes like 15 years to write a book. Yeah. They're exquisite. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I don't know if mine's going to be exquisite or not, but mm-hmm. <laughs> 10 years of work. Thank you, Charles. Thanks. Okay, Mom. Uh, tell people what they can order from the garage. Okay. In our cottage garage, we have lots and lots of T-shirts. Sex at Dawn, Civilized to Death, Vanthropology, Tangentially Speaking, Paleo Modern, and Talking Out of My Ass. 
<laughs> she didn't like saying that last one. Then we now have some new things added. We've got beer cozies or koozies or whatever they're called. Oh, civilized to death design. They're all civilized That's right. to death. We have stickers and car decals, right? Yes. Okay. There you have it. That's Julie, my mom. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm going to die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're going to say. When everyone you've ever known is headed for a headstone, I don't want to give the end away, but we're going to die one day. Your body is an animal, doesn't ask for much. A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Thinking about a reputation Running from a to the ground. 